1878, near the West Virginia-Kentucky border, a dispute arose over the ownership of a hog. One side claimed that the hog was theirs, proven by the marks on their ears. But the local jury ruled that the hog belonged to the accused thief. But that wasn't the end of the dispute. This was the beginning of the most notorious feud in American history, the Hatfields and the McCoys, with the two main characters being Anderson Hatfield and Randall McCoy. The justice of the peace was part of the the Hatfield family, and and so this man uh, created a jury of six McCoys and six Hatfields. And the jury ruled in favor of Hatfield because many of the McCoys blamed the Hatfields for the defeat and the loss of their hog. Two years later, Bill Staten, a member of both families and an eyewitness that swayed the jury by his testimony to give the hog to the Hatfields, was killed by two McCoy brothers. The feud escalated when Rosanna McCoy and Johnson Hatfield became romantically involved. I think Shakespeare wrote something similar to that. Rosanna ran off to live with the Hatfields in West Virginia, but came back not long after when she realized that her love interest wouldn't not interested in marrying her. That was in 1880. Two years later, August 7th, 1882, Anderson Hatfield's brother, Ellison, got into a fight with Randall McCoy's son, Tolbert. Tolbert repeatedly stabbed Ellison, as did his two brothers, Palmer and Randolph Jr., and Ellison was also shot once in the altercation. The brothers were arrested but never sentenced. When Anderson Hatfield heard of his brother's shooting, he rounded up a group of supporters and took them took the McCoys away from the lawmen. Hatfield brought the McCoys back to West Virginia and held them prisoner. Their mother, Sally McCoy, came to plead for the Hatfields to spare her son's lives. But when Anderson Hatfield learned that his brother had died, he tied the men up to a tree and executed them. The killers were indicted, but authorities were unwilling to arrest them. For five years, Anderson Hatfield and his co-conspirators went about their business with no problem. Believing if the McCoys were dead that the murder case would fall apart, the Hatfields organized a group to attack the McCoys at their home on New Year's Day in 1888. Two Hatfield boys and their uncle, among others, conducted the raid. The group killed several members of the McCoy family, but Randall McCoy and his wife and his daughters were able to survive. As this was happening, reports made national news. Media frenzy. And the story still intrigues people today. And if you do not believe me, um, you can go just up the mountains and for 70 bucks you can see a comedic routine of this feud. The ensuing court battles received lots of press attention as members of the Hatfields family and his supporters were eventually brought to trial. Nine of them, including his brother Valentine, were found guilty in 1889 and given life sentences. His nephew Ellison Mounts was executed in 1890 for the murder of Alifair McCoy, Randall's daughter. Anderson, however, was never tried for his role of the uh, McCoy or the McCoy's uh, brothers for his possible involvement in the New Year's Day attack. Shortly after the brutal day in 1888, Hatfield bought some land and kind of disappeared. See, this feud raged for decades claiming a dozen lives uh, on both sides, and, and governors uh, of West Virginia and Kentucky, and, and even uh, the United States Supreme Court had to get involved to end this bitter fighting. 
The family feud was only ended when outside parties. Someone who was not affiliated with either family was able to come in and make the decision, end the dispute. See, when there's bitter disagreement, particularly violent disagreement, it's unusual for one side to back down. It is so incredibly hard for two sides in an argument for one person to back down and say, okay, here's your way. Especially when it's violent and there's murder involved. The dispute needs to be settled by someone powerful, someone outside of the dispute and disagreement. See, we see feuds happening all throughout Scripture too, don't we? Yes, there's differences in mode of how this happens, but the reality is that we see family feuds at the very earliest of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 4, Jacob and Esau, we see a feud between, uh, 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 or excuse me, between Cain and Abel, the first two children. Family feud began with the first two children. We see the the first act of, of worship in human history happening, and then the first murder shortly after. Both men brought offerings to God. God had instructed them what to do. Abel was a shepherd, so he he bought the fat portions of his firstborn of the flock. God found favor and it was accepted. Cain brought some fruits of the soil as an offering to God, but God rejected that offering. Something that was acceptable in Cain's eyes, but it was not to God. So what did Cain do? He became angry, and he killed Abel in the field. Now, knowing our own hearts, it's safe to assume that had he not done it then, over time, that angerness and bitterness and resentment would have built up. That that it would have built up to a point where he couldn't deal with it anymore. I know this because this is how we operate. We hold resentment and bitterness in, and it steams and steams and steams. Well, in the McCoy case, in the Hatfield case, the authorities stepped in and stopped the fighting. But what about Cain and Abel? What about us? See, we know by reading through Genesis 4 that God dealt with Cain. God said this to Cain, And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. God stepped in and dealt with Cain, but what about us? What about those terrible feelings that we have towards someone? It may not be our fault, but maybe it is. Maybe the the hurt runs deep for, for so incredibly long, so long that we can't even remember how it started. If you have family feuds or issues in your family that goes back decades or maybe even longer than that, You'll ask some of the older members of your family, well, why don't we do this? Why, why did this person get rejected? And often you'll hear multiple different stories. The disagreements, the disputes, they run so deep that so often we forget how they even started. What do we do then? Most of the time we ignore the problem, hoping it goes away. It's just masking it, though, and it leads to to uncomfortable situations and more animosity. So do we just throw our hands up and say, well, we're done, we can't deal with this, this is beyond our power? Of course not. 
Think of a moment in your life where you knew that there was nothing that you could do to fix it. That, that you thought, how in the world do I answer this? How do I fix this problem? I see it, but I can't fix it. Think of a problem. Stalemate. You're in a disagreement with someone, and maybe it's even in your marriage, but friendships, families, and, and there is no way that you can figure your way out of it. We focus on prayer. We, we get on our knees begging God for reconciliation. Because in situations like this, there is no other solution. Now, before I go any further, God is not a genie. God is not just waiting for you to, to ask him, and then he comes and solves all the problems that you have. That's not how God functions. And we certainly shouldn't look at God that way, where, where we have all of these issues and, and we only go to God when things are really, really bad to help us or to get us out. But the truth is that when we have these issues, when we have these tensions, our first response should be going to God. Seeing what God says in His Word, listening to what He says. It's easy to find ourselves in a battle like the Hatfields and the McCoys. It's so incredibly easy. Now, I hope we're not shooting at each other, and I hope there's no stabbings and murders and all this other stuff, but, but the truth is that the same sin that caused the Hatfields and the McCoys to fight for so long is the same sin that resides in our own hearts. And But by the grace of God, we don't fall into the same traps that they do. And, and as I'm thinking through this passage, I go back to the Hatfields and the McCoys, but the reality is in Obadiah, the situation is even worse. Have you ever wondered how the Israelites felt with their feud with Edom? The conflict started in Rebekah's womb. This goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. This is not new. And it's way more serious than a fight over a stupid hog. Years of hostility between the two nations spurred on by Edom's aggression. Finally, the boiling point was the attack of the Babylonians where they invaded Jerusalem. And as the Israelites were fleeing, the Edomites were surrounding them and pushed them back towards the Babylonians to be captured and enslaved. The conflict was not going to end. The Edomites had shown themselves to be a people of hostility and war and arrogance Yes, people change. We know this. But the only thing that changed for Edom was an increase in all of those bad things. The only person who could fix this mess was God. The Israelites could not defend themselves by themselves. The nations could not come and, and surround them and protect them. They weren't going to do that. God's intervention is the only thing that could solve this problem for the Israelites. And God, through his prophet Obadiah, gives a dire warning to the Edomites. This is found in verses 5 through 9. And in these four verses, we saw God's announcement of doom. In the first four verses, God's announcement of doom for the Edomites. And it, as we read this, or as we just read, 5 through 9... Remember that when it says Esau, he's talking about Edom. Edom is the descendant, or are the descendants of Esau. Remember, this issue began hundreds of hundreds of years ago, and now it's coming to a boil. 
There's nothing that can be done to fix this from a human perspective. And in this verse 5, we see two hypothetical questions. Really, it's a calling for the Edomites to think about their history, what they've done to Israel. The prophet is asking this, what if someone broke into your home? And what do grape pickers do when they pick the vineyards? In other words, when someone breaks into a home, they don't take everything out of the house. Right? Generally, thieves who break into someone's home, they're not carrying out your L-shaped sofa. They're not carrying out your, your, your wardrobe with clothes in it, right? Money, jewelry, precious things that are small that they can get out. So the owner, in general, when, when someone robs someone's house, the owner is not left with a complete loss. Now notice in the middle of verse 5, the prophet couldn't even wait to, to finish his thought about the destruction of Edom when he says this, how you have been destroyed, the prophet can't even hold it in. Saying, it's already been done. This is a promise. Edom, you will be destroyed. And then we see a second question in verse 5. If, a grape, gather, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? In, in these days, the, the, the people who would pick the fields would often uh, drop things. Uh, some on purpose, some not. And people who were, were poor or people who didn't have food could go in and grab all of the leftovers. So when gleaning would happen or, or when people would pick the fields, they would not pick everything. There would be leftovers. And, and, and harvesters don't pick the vineyards clean. So what the prophet is saying regarding Edom is found in verse 6. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. He's saying... The pillagers are coming in. They're not just taking a few things. They're taking everything. And then now the prophet flips upside down. He says, these are not partial losses. Edom will be stripped clean. There is nothing left. This is what he says in verse 6. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Edom, the enemies of the people of God, will be brought down from their perch. Their fortifications and safe dwellings may be strong against human armies, but against God they cannot stand. Edom will be defeated. Edom's stolen goods that they took from Israel, that they likely kept safe in the mountains, will be removed and returned to their rightful owners. So how will this all come about? Verse 7. Verse 7 tells about how God will lure the Edomites down from their dwellings and even more than losing their valuables the things that they've stolen the prophet said that their allies will turn on them Edom like any country would have had peace agreements just like we have today that 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 when someone is attacked that that's part of our alliances we will defend them and, and Edom would have likely had those with surrounding nations and they would have felt like their agreements were binding Edom's security depended on this. They thought the other nations were loyal to them, but God had different plans. Edom's allies would abandon them. No longer could they be trusted, and they were nowhere to be found when Edom cried for help. This is the punishment of God, the judgment of God coming down on Edom, and it's promised here. We don't know how, the, how this all happened. We don't know the details but it is yet another reminder of God's providence in all areas of our life. 
we read the Bible and we see the promises that God has made to us, and sometimes it feels like he's, he's forgotten us. Sometimes it feels like we're, we're crying out, we're begging for help, and yet God is silent. And this is probably how the Israelites felt. They're being abused by Edom. The armies are attacking. They're, 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 they're a pest. They're a bully, and they keep poking and poking. And Israel's praying, God, where are you? Fulfill your promises to us. Why haven't you given us what you've said you were going to give us? Where is God now? And I think about how often we think, think the same thing. In the middle of a tragedy or a difficult time, when everything seems to be piling against us, we stand and we say, God, where are you? God, you've given me your word. You've said in your word that you will never leave me or forsake me. You've given me this promise. God, I I'm begging you, fulfill it now, please. I need it. No one knows when Obadiah wrote this exactly, but it could have been in the 800s or 500s B.C., but there is archaeological evidence that shows that this prophecy was fulfilled sometime around 500 B.C. when Edom was destroyed. Now, what is, why does this matter? It shows that God kept his promises. Now, here's the thing, and this is a hard pill to swallow for a lot of us. Most of the people who would have read this when it, when it was written, or all of them possibly, were all dead when the fulfillment happened. So if Obadiah wrote this 800 B.C. and the, de the destruction of Edom didn't happen until 500 B.C., all of those people, including Obadiah, had long died. They didn't see the fulfillment of the promise. And that's a hard pill to swallow. When God makes promises and he says, I will do this, but we don't get to see it. We don't get to experience that. That's difficult. But the guarantee is there that this would absolutely happen, so they trusted. They had to. Just as much as we trust that one day Jesus returns and makes all things right, that makes all things new. We may never see it. Christians have been waiting for 2,000 years for the return of Christ, and it has not happened yet. But we trust, we wait, because God has made that promise. He said that he will send his son and all things will be made new. And you and I should find great comfort in this. E even in the struggle of the Israelites against Edom, we can find comfort in this. The, the world doesn't revolve around us and things don't happen simply because we want them to on our time. But we know that all things work together for our good and for God's glory. And the story of the Israelites waiting for God to fulfill His word Shows us that. Be honest, I never thought I'd find comfort in the destruction of people, whoever they are. But I find comfort in the fact that God kept his promises to his people then, and he does the same now. And finally, at the end of verse 7, you see that Obadiah writes this You have no understanding. You have no understanding. Edom was known for their wisdom. They had smart people. They had wise men. And God, through the prophet Obadiah, says, your wise people are nothing compared to me.
If you were so smart, you would see that your end is near. If you had wisdom, you would understand what you're doing is not okay. And then we see in verses 8 and 9, the people of Edom, uh, who will suffer? Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Edom's wise men will be destroyed, its population will be decimated, his soldiers will be destroyed. Edom had a reputation. They fought. They had wise people behind the scenes. But compared to God, their strength and wisdom was nothing. And so what happens? What happens to the wise men? What happens to the men who were part of the persecution of God's people? The same thing that happens to those of us who think we are wise, who think we are strong, but have never been transformed by the power of the gospel. This is not just a warning against Edom. Do not, do not just read this as a historical account. Do not read this as something that happened 2,500 years ago. Read it as something that would happen to you and to me if we do not belong to God. The same fate. Now there are two main lessons to take away from this passage. First, God keeps his promises. And second, those who reject him will be punished. In verse 9, the warning is clear. Everyone who opposes God will be cut down. He may be thinking, well, wait, that's the Old Testament. The, the God of the Old Testament uh, seems angry and fiery and, and bent on destruction. And then Jesus comes and Jesus loves the little children, right? That, that's what we're taught. It's almost as if God is, is different or there's two separate gods that are functioning here. But, but the truth is that the God of the Old Testament is the exact same God of the New Testament. God never changes. God didn't just change his mind all of a sudden and become from, go from angry to being nice. You say, well, wait... I've never seen that in the New Testament. Well, it's just because you haven't read it. Listen, Matthew 3, as John the Baptist was preaching in preparation of Jesus, we read this. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, Jesus said to them, You brood of vipers, brothers of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, does, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In Romans 2, Paul writes this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works those who by patience and well-doing 
seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Jesus said in John 3, we know John 3, 16, but what about this? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is not pleasant. My goodness, I would love to come in and preach something that leaves everybody dancing in the aisles as we leave, right? I don't enjoy talking about the wrath of God, but it is a reality. It is promised that those who do not know Christ, that those who have never repented and put their faith in Christ will suffer the wrath of God. And if we know anything about the character of God, we can expect nothing less. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be defeated. Sin must be destroyed. And this is the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is this, that we all deserve that fate, but yet God in his grace and mercy saves us. He gives us a gift that we do not earn, that we do not uh, deserve, that we deserve that same fate as the people in Edom are promised. God's promises to Edom are just as relevant to us today If we think we're too strong or too wise or too protected to need God's saving grace, we are in the same situation as Eden. God's promise is that if we reject him, if we do not put faith in him as sovereign king, then we are to suffer the same fate as Eden. We will be cut down. And this is really the the plea of the entire Bible, though we often miss it. The plea is to repent or you will perish. Repent means to turn from your sin. Acknowledging that you've done wrong. That you have idolized yourself or something else. That you have tried your best to remove God off of his throne and put yourself on instead. And to repent means to turn away and to turn to Christ. To get freedom from guilt and the penalty of sin, which is hell. The Jews in the Old Testament patiently awaited the Messiah. Those who put their hope and trust in that had their faith counted to them as righteousness. We do the same, but we have the revealed Messiah. We have the entire story. And when we put our faith and our trust in Christ as the only way to salvation, the only way to God, we are saved. Given the righteousness of God, of Jesus, it has covered our sins so that no longer does God see our weakness and our sin and our shame, but rather he sees the reflection of his son in us. I want to close this morning with a passage from the New Testament, Revelation chapter 19, that sounds an awful lot like what we read in Obadiah. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the king of kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who have received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is our king. The one who is coming, riding on a white horse, with a tattoo on his leg, and robe dipped in blood, with a sword coming out of his mouth that's going to strike down the enemies of God. This is who we await. This is who we worship. You say, well, Obadiah sounds really tough. Read Revelation 19 again. The promise is that the nations who reject Christ, the nations who oppose the story of God spread through the gospel will be destroyed. Don't be scared of this, Christian. This is not frightening at all. Because the promise in Obadiah is the same promise in Revelation that God wins. Like the Israelites, we may not see it this side. We may not be alive when Jesus returns to, to finish it all up. We, we may not see it physically, but it will happen. It is promised. So you say, well, what does this mean for me? What it means is that all the junk that you're going through right now, all the struggles and suffering that you're going through right now, it does have an end. And the promise is victory. Not victory simply because you're good or because you're smart or because you're strong. That has nothing to do with it. The victory comes because Jesus wins. The promise of God is clear. That victory belongs to him. And we benefit from it. Would you pray with me?